Chapter Five of Raiding with Morgan by Byron Dunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Morgan's first great raid. The struggle for the possession of Corinth was ended. General Halleck, with his immense army of one hundred and twenty-five thousand men, had thought to reduce the place by regular siege, and force General Beauregard to capitulate, surrendering himself with his whole army. But Beauregard was too able a general to be caught in a trap. For a month he held the Federal army at bay, and then, when Halleck was about to spring his trap, Beauregard silently withdrew, leaving to him but a barren victory. The Confederate army was saved, and to the Federal forces the occupation of Corinth proved as demoralizing as a defeat. The result showed that John Morgan was right when he said that the hope of the South rested not on the occupancy of any single place, but on the safety of its armies. The fall of Corinth at once changed the theater of war. The Federal army was divided, the Army of the Tennessee, under Grant, remaining in Mississippi and western Tennessee, and the Army of the Ohio, under Buell, being ordered to march east and capture Chattanooga. If Buell had acted promptly and swiftly, he might have been successful, and the death blow would have been given to the Confederacy long before it was. But he moved slowly and haltingly, and the golden opportunity was lost. It gave the Confederacy time to transfer to Chattanooga the larger part of the army which had been at Corinth. The command of this army was given to General Braxton Bragg, a brave man, and by many thought to be one of the ablest generals of the South. It at once became the dream of General Bragg to gather as large an army as possible, then march northward, clear to the Ohio River, sweeping everything before him. This dream came near being realized. It was made possible by the efforts and deeds of two men, General John H. Morgan and General N. B. Forrest. These two great raiders and leaders of cavalry nearly turned the scale in favor of the Confederacy. They raided the rear of the Federal Army, tore up railroads, destroyed millions of dollars' worth of property, and captured thousands of prisoners. They ran General Buell nearly distracted, and caused him not to know which way to turn. They made it possible for General Bragg to reach Kentucky unopposed, and if, after reaching Kentucky, General Bragg had proved as able a leader of infantry as Morgan was of cavalry, Buell's army would have been destroyed. While Bragg was organizing his army at Chattanooga, another Confederate army was being organized at Knoxville, under General E. Kirby Smith. This army was to invade Kentucky by way of East Tennessee, while General Bragg was to invade by way of Middle Tennessee. Once in Kentucky, the two armies were to unite. This program was successfully carried out, and yet the whole movement was a failure, as far as the occupancy of Kentucky was concerned. After the fall of Corinth, Colonel Morgan rendezvoused his little force at Chattanooga. From Chattanooga, he proceeded to Knoxville, where he at once began the preparations for another raid. As Cumberland Gap was held by the Federals, Colonel Morgan decided to cross over into Middle Tennessee before invading Kentucky. His command consisted of about 900 men, 
made up of two regiments and two independent companies. His own regiment was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Basil Duke. All through Morgan's career, Colonel Duke was his chief advisor, so much so that many claim that Morgan's success was mainly due to Colonel Duke. "'Why doesn't someone shoot Basil Duke through the head and blow out John Morgan's brains?' exclaimed a disgusted Federal officer, after a fruitless effort to catch Morgan. But the officer was mistaken. Both had brains. Like Grant and Sherman, they worked hand in hand. One needed the other. Together they were invincible. Before leaving Knoxville, Morgan picked out twenty-five men, mounted on the best and fleetest horses, and placed them in command of Calhoun Pennington. They were to be the scouts of the command, and well did they do their duty. More than once did they save Morgan from heavy losses by ascertaining the movements of the enemy. Morgan left Knoxville July 4th. His route lay directly west over the Cumberland Mountains to Sparta, a distance of 104 miles. This, in spite of the rough roads, he made in three days. Many of the mountaineers of East Tennessee clung to the Union, and, much of the way, he had to ride through almost as hostile a country as if raiding through the north. The utmost vigilance had to be used, and Calhoun, with his scouts, was kept well in front to see that the road was clear. On the second day's march there was a crack of a rifle from a mountainside, and one of the scouts tumbled from his horse, dead. A little cloud of white smoke up the mountain showed from where the shot was fired. With a cry of rage, the scouts sent a volley where the little cloud was seen, then springing from their horses, clambered up the mountain to hunt down the murderer, but their search was fruitless. About a mile beyond where the shooting took place, they came to a rough log cabin, surrounded by a few acres of comparatively smooth ground. A small patch of corn and potatoes was growing near the cabin, and an old man with tangled gray hair and beard was hoeing in the field. An old woman sat in the door calmly smoking a corncob pipe. Neither seemed to notice the soldiers as they came riding up. "'You, man, come here,' sternly called Calhoun. The mountaineer deliberately laid down his hoe and slowly came to where Calhoun was. He seemed to be in no hurry, nor did he appear to be disturbed. "'What is your name?' demanded Calhoun. "'Nichols, Jim Nichols,' drawled the man. "'Are you well acquainted around here?' demanded Calhoun. "'Have lived here going on twenty years,' was the answer. "'We have just had a man shot by one of your skulking mountaineers. "'Do you know anyone likely to do such a deed? "'Tell the truth, or it will be the worse for you.' "'The old man shook his head. "'The men be all gone in one army or the other.' he answered. "'Are you Union or Confederate?' asked Calhoun. "'The war is nothing to Weans,' he drawled. "'Weans own no niggers.' "'That's no answer,' fiercely replied Calhoun. "'I have a mind to hang you up like a dog. A little stretching of the neck might loosen your tongue.' At the word hang, a strange look came into the old man's eyes, a look as of mortal hatred. But it was gone in a moment, and the drawing answer came, Weans knows nothing. There may be strange men hiding in the mountain. Weans don't know. Have you a family? A gal. 
Where is she? Done gone over the mountain to see the Jimson gals. You have no son? At the word son, again the deadly glint came into the old man's eyes. Again it was gone in a moment, and the answer came, no. The cabin was searched, the mountaineer and his wife apparently perfectly unconcerned as to what was going on. But nothing suspicious was found, and Calhoun had to confess himself baffled. But after Morgan's column had passed, a tall, lank girl with unkept hair might have been seen coming down the mountainside, carrying a long rifle in her hand. Swiftly and surely as a deer, she leaped from rock to rock, and soon neared the cabin. Carefully concealing her rifle beneath a huge rock, she came slowly up to the door of the cabin, where the old man sat smoking. He looked up at her inquiringly, but did not say a word. "'We uns got one, Dad,' she said as she passed in. Not another word was spoken, but the old man sat in smoke and watched the sun as it slowly sunk to rest behind the mountain. If Calhoun had known that Nichols's only son had been hanged the winter before by the Confederate authorities for bridge-burning, and that his sister had sworn revenge, he would not have been at a loss as to who had fired the deadly shot, for every mountain girl can use a rifle. From Sparta, Morgan made a rapid march to Selina, where he forded the Cumberland River. At Selina, he learned that there was a federal force at Tompkinsville, which is just over the line in Kentucky. By a swift advance, he hoped to surprise and capture this force. As the command crossed the line from Tennessee into Kentucky, the enthusiasm of the men knew no bounds. They sang My Old Kentucky Home and cheered again and again. Tompkinsville was reached at five o'clock on the morning of the 9th of July. The Federals, under the command of Major Thomas J. Jordan of the 9th Pennsylvania Cavalry, though surprised, made a stand, and the battle at once opened. But a few shots from Morgan's mountain howitzers utterly demoralized the Federals, and they fled in confusion. Major Jordan, after retreating about a mile, succeeded in rallying about seventy-five of his men and made a stand to cover the retreat of his force. Calhoun, with some fifteen of his scouts far in advance of the main column, charged down on them without hesitating a moment. The Federals, although they outnumbered the scouts five to one, were ridden down, and throwing down their arms, they cried for mercy. In this fight, the gallant Colonel Hunt was mortally wounded. He was one of Morgan's best officers, and his loss was deeply mourned. From Tompkinsville, Morgan moved to Glasgow, arriving there at one o'clock in the morning. The Federal garrison had heard of his approach and had fled, leaving everything behind them. A large quantity of military stores fell into Morgan's hands and was destroyed. Although it was in the middle of the night, the glad news spread through the town, and the citizens were hailing each other with the glad shout, Morgan has come again, Morgan has come again. Soon from every house lights were flashing, and every woman was engaged in cooking. When morning came, not only a steaming hot breakfast of the best that place afforded was set before the men, but three days' cooked rations were given each man. At Glasgow, Morgan gave out that he was again to raid the Louisville and Nashville Railroad. In order to carry out the deception, 
When he left Glasgow, he followed the road, which would lead him to strike the railroad in between Woodsonville and Mumfordsville. But when he was within a few miles of the road, he halted his command, and, taking only Calhoun and his scouts, he struck the road at a lonely place a short distance from Horse Cove. Here he had his telegraph operator, a sharp young fellow named Ellsworth, attach his private instrument to the telegraph wire, and for two hours Ellsworth, in the midst of a driving storm and standing in water up to his knees, took every message that passed over the wire. It was rare fun to hear the Federal officers telling all their secrets and revealing the terror they were in over Morgan's raid. After listening to their plans of how they would try to capture him, Morgan had Ellsworth send the following dispatch to the Provost Marshal at Louisville. Nashville, Tennessee, July 10, 1862. General Forrest, commanding brigade, attacked Murfreesboro, routing our forces, and is now moving on Nashville. Morgan is reported to be between Scottsville and Gallatin, and will act in concert with Forrest, it is believed. Inform General Commanding. Stanley Matthews, Provost Marshal. Morgan sent this dispatch to lead the Federal authorities to believe that he was returning from Kentucky. But the strange part of it is that Forrest did on that very day attack and capture Murfreesboro. And of this fact, Morgan was entirely ignorant. Leaving the telegraph and railroad intact, so as to have the Federals remain in ignorance of what he had done and where he was, Morgan rejoined his command and set out for Lebanon, a ride of over forty miles. The place fell almost without struggle. Dashing in at the head of his scouts, Calhoun took possession of the telegraph office. This was at three o'clock in the morning. Unsuspicious of danger, the regular telegraph operator was at home asleep, and Ellsworth was once more installed at the instrument. It seemed that the day before, Colonel Johnson, commanding the place, had telegraphed for reinforcements, saying he feared an attack. The first dispatch that Ellsworth received was, "'What news? Any more skirmishing?' To which Ellsworth answered, "'No, we drove what few cavalry there were away.' The next was, "'Has the train arrived yet?' "'No. How many troops on the train?' asked Ellsworth. "'About five hundred was the answer.' This was what Morgan wanted to know, and he at once dispatched a column to intercept the train. But the train scented danger, and backed with all speed toward Louisville. At Lebanon, immense stores fell into Morgan's hands. Two large warehouses filled to overflowing with clothing, rations, and the munitions of war were given to the flames. Five thousand stand of arms were among the trophies. Morgan picked out the best of these to arm his men. The destruction of federal property being complete, Morgan started north, going through Springfield and Mackville to Harrodsburg. Here he met with a most enthusiastic reception. Nothing was too good for Morgan's men. While at Harrodsburg, Calhoun greatly wished that Morgan would make a detour and visit Danville, but this Morgan refused to do as it would take him too far out of his route and give the Federals time to concentrate against him. Thus Calhoun was prevented from entering his native town in triumph. 
Morgan had caused the report to be circulated far and near that he had a force of 5,000, and that his object was the capture of Frankfurt. From Harrodsburg he moved to Midway, on the line of the Louisville and Lexington Railroad. The place was about equidistant from Frankfurt and Lexington, and from it either place could be equally threatened. Here he once more took possession of the telegraph office, and Ellsworth was once more busy in sending telegrams. In the names of the different Federal officers, Morgan telegraphed right and left, ordering the Federal troops here and there, everywhere but to the right place, and causing the utmost confusion. The poor Federals were at their wits' end. They knew not what to do, or which way to turn. The whole state was in terror. The name of Morgan was on every tongue. His force was magnified fivefold. General Boyle, in command of the Department of Kentucky, was deluged with telegrams imploring assistance. He, in turn, deluged General Halleck, General Buell, and even President Lincoln. "'Send me troops, or Kentucky is lost. John Morgan will have it,' he said. Lincoln telegraphed to Halleck at Corinth. "'They are having a stampede in Kentucky. Please look to it.' Buell telegraphed. "'I can do nothing. Have no men I can send.' Thus Kentucky was left to her fears. Never did a thousand men create a greater panic. From Midway, Colonel Morgan made a strong demonstration toward Frankfurt, strengthening the belief that he was to attack that place, but his real object was the capture of Lexington. Calhoun, with his men, scouted clear up to the outskirts of the place, driving in the Federal outposts, but he learned that the city was garrisoned by at least five times the number of Morgan's men. This fact he reported to his chief, who saw that it would be madness to attempt to capture it. Morgan therefore resolved to swing clear around Lexington, thoroughly breaking the railroad which led from that place to Cincinnati. So he gave orders to start for Paris. But he was unexpectedly delayed for a day at Midway by an unfortunate incident, the capture of Calhoun and one of his men by the home guards. End of chapter 5